my lovelies. Hello, hello. This is Lori and Tori coming to you from the haunted corners of New England, and you're listening to the Something Wicked podcast, the show that delves deep into the topics of true crime, haunted histories, and all things paranormal, dedicated to the people that love to know all the spooky and gruesome details about serial killers, haunted houses, and creepy cryptids with tales to make you sleep with the lights on. This episode, we are going to start discussing some of the most prolific paranormal investigators of the 20th century, the Warrens. Fuck yeah. <laughs> we are going to go over their background, some of their most famous case files, and do some truth-to-movie comparisons thanks to the Conjuring universe and its offshoots. So, sit back, pop some corn, and get ready for our first case, The Perrin Family Haunting. Enjoy! Welcome back to the show, and for those of you new to the podcast, I'll say thanks for tuning in. As we said in the intro, we are going to be covering the Warren cases. I have been waiting for this episode for the longest time. I am so excited. Same. For this one in particular, we are going to start with the Perrin family. If any of you guys have seen The Conjuring, you're going to have a pretty good grasp on our subject. We're going to talk about the Warrens themselves, how they got introduced to the family, what happened in the home according to first-hand accounts from Andrea Perrin, and how the actual history of the farm compares to the famous Hollywood franchise. And here we go. Whee! Ed and Lorraine Warren are some of the most famous named paranormal investigators slash demonologists in the world. Together, over their 50-plus year career, they claim to have investigated over 100,000 cases into incidents of all kinds involving the supernatural with doctors, nurses, and police at their assistance, from haunted houses, dolls, demon possession, and famous court cases where they introduced the idea of demonic possession as a defense. Their fame has spawned a booming box office franchise that, to this day, holds the second highest grossing horror series in history, The Conjuring Universe. They have also written books, given lectures, and, of course, owned the most infamous museum for haunted artifacts in the country. If you are an avid member of the paranormal community, there is no way you have not at least heard of them. So let's get a little bit of background on them, shall we? Ed Warren was born on September 17th, 1926 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Lorraine was born Lorraine Moran on January 31st, 1927, also in Bridgeport, Connecticut. There's not that much information I could find on their childhood, how they grew up, etc. They were very private people when it came to their personal life can't say that I blame them. Not at all. Lorraine was said to be a clairvoyant, meaning that she was reported as having been able to gain insight on cases through supernatural abilities. She was also considered a medium, which means having the ability to communicate with paranormal entities, and according to her biography on the New England Society for Psychic Research website, Ed was a self-taught demonologist and a devout Roman Catholic. 
part of Lorraine's power from the time she was seven was that she was able to see the auras around people. She was afraid that if she told her parents about this ability, they would think that she was crazy, so she kept it to herself. Then at age 16, she met Ed. Her friends had taken her out to see a James Cagney movie, and Ed was the usher at the theater. Aww. That's cute. Ed grew up in a haunted house and was so affected by it, he then studied into the subject of everything paranormal and demonic and became a demonologist. Lorraine finally had someone that shared her beliefs and truly believed that she, in fact, was gifted. Ed ended up serving some time in the military back in World War II. After he returned home, the two were married in 1945. A year later, on January 11th, 1946, Lorraine gave birth to their daughter, Judy. Ed then enrolled in Yale's subsidiary art school, Perry Art School. The couple traveled New England, attempting to make a profit off of Ed's paintings, but along the way, they would often stop at haunted locations, which were often the inspiration for Ed's work. That's neat. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. I kind of want to see his painting work now. Yeah. This was said to be the catalyst for their exploration into the paranormal. I mean... Yeah, I think it would be for me, too. I'd be right there with them. As they were both members of the Catholic Church, they based a lot of their experiences and investigations on their faith in God. And the fact that the families they visited were affected so badly was their lack thereof. The Warrens held that demonic forces are likely to possess those that lack faith. Lorraine said it was her belief that lack of religion was what opened the door for malevolent forces to enter a home or a life. In fact, she told the Irish Independent in 2013, quote, When there's no religion, it's absolutely terrifying. That is your protection. God is your protection. It doesn't matter what your religion is. I mean, kind of agree on that in the sense that depending on what type of presence you have around you, what energies there are, how it affects certain entities in the home. Like if God is a thing that whatever entity is afraid of then sure use that to like piss it off or get it out of your house i mean i think that religion is a very big thing here because of the fact that deities can offer protection i think that she's onto something there but that isn't the only thing yeah i mean i can uh, given her background i get it i definitely understand that point of view yeah however i think that any religion in general As I said, it depends on how the entities react to whatever in the house. Right. Is your protection regardless. In 1952, the Warrens established the New England Society for Psychic Research, which is credited as the oldest paranormal research organization in the country. According to Nesper, the Warrens conducted over 100 individual paranormal investigations during their time. Okay, so... Maybe the other 90,900 were done through Nesper? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Anyway. (laughs) The Warrens didn't really come into the spotlight until the infamous investigation into the Amityville home back in March of 1976. Along with that haunting, they covered a number of well-known such as the Annabelle doll in 1971, the Enfield poltergeist in 1977, which is The Conjuring 2, The Arnie Johnson case in 1980, which is The Devil Made Me Do It. Uh, The Snedeker House in 1986, which is Haunting in Connecticut, which isn't part of the Conjuring universe, but still, they they still investigated there. And uh, the Smurl family also in 1986, and the Perrin family in 1974, which we're covering today. I really thought that said Smurf. 
Smurf. It says Smurl, <laughs> but I read Smurf. And I'm like, oh. The Smurf family. God, little blue people. Damn you, Gargamel! <laughs> oh, man. Lorraine often said that when investigating a house, she preferred to be allowed to roam freely and to concentrate on the bedrooms. She said, quote, that is the easiest way to sit on the edge of the bed. You know, when you go to bed at night, how all these things go through your mind, that's all recorded. You think these things out, what you've experienced, you go to bed and it played out for you again. The moment between waking and sleep, which I can see that. There's a lot of energies built up in that, congregating around the area you sleep, I guess. The Warrens never charged for their investigations. They made their money from movie and TV licensing rights, books, lectures, and tours of their museum. With the help of their son-in-law, they ran the Warren Occult Museum out of the back of their house in Monroe, Connecticut. The museum displayed many acclaimed haunted objects and artifacts from around the world. The museum, in light of the Warren's death, is now run by their daughter Judy and son-in-law. Toward the end of their investigative period, the Warrens focused heavily on passing their knowledge of the occult by hosting various lectures across the country. In 2006, Ed passed away from complications after a stroke at the age of 79. Lorraine continued to do the lectures on her own and served as the consultant on the first two Conjuring movies before her death on April 18th of 2019 at age 93. The couple is now resting side-by-side in the Stepney Cemetery in Monroe, Connecticut. Nesper is now currently being run by their son-in-law, Tony Spera, co-director of the organization and curator of the museum, as well as Judy Spera, their daughter, who also co-directs the organization. The duo have continued the Warrens' tradition of lectures on the paranormal and have preserved the Warrens' case files archive. Which is really sweet. That is really cool that they did all that. Even though the Warrens are usually held in high regard in the paranormal community, I for one have nothing but the utmost respect and admiration for them. There have been doubters over the years. According to a 1997 interview with the Connecticut Post, Steve Novella and Perry DeAngelis investigated the Warrens for the New England Skeptical Society, NESS, (laughs) which, first off, nice acronym, having the same spelling as one of the nicknames for the Loch Ness Monster, really helping your cause. That's But I digress. Funny. Okay. Yeah, I didn't even put <laughs> yeah, that together. Ness. <laughs> New England Skeptical Society. I've yeah. never even heard of them. Yeah, I haven't before I researched this either. They found the couple to be pleasant people, but their claims of demons and ghosts to be, quote, at best tellers of meaningless ghost stories and at worst dangerous frauds, end wow. quote. Yeah. They took the $13 tour and looked at all the evidence the Warrens had for spirits and ghosts. They watched the videos and looked at the best evidence presented. Their conclusion was that, quote, it's all blarney. End quote. What the fuck? Wow. Fucking assholes. They found common errors with flash photography and nothing evil in the artifacts the Warrens had collected. They stated, They have a ton of fish stories about evidence that got away. They're not doing good scientific investigation. They have a predetermined conclusion which they adhere to literally and religiously. End quote. <laughs> oh my god. Lorraine said the problem with Perry and Steve is that, quote, they don't base anything on God. Steve responded, it takes work to do solid critical thinking, to actually employ your intellectual faculties and come to a conclusion that actually reflects reality. That's what scientists do every day, and that's what skeptics advocate. Okay, yeah, it's good to use your think meat when you're going into situations like this. However, there are some things that can't be explained by science, hence 
paranormal. <laughs> yes! There are a lot of fucking nut jobs out there that jump at every sound and think that every single shadow is a ghost. No offense, but seriously. When you employ scientific testing and do some good old-fashioned debunking and shit is still happening, guess what? You might have a ghost in that bitch. Yep. Either that, or your house is just settling so much that you may want to move because it's going to collapse if that's what's causing the noise. You <laughs> just say it. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ. That's a little too much settling. That sounds like boots upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> Backing up on that, we have more news articles that covered some of the skeptics in an article for the Sydney Morning Herald that examined whether supernatural films are based on true events. The investigation from Stephen Perry was used as evidence to the contrary. As Steve quoted, They, the Warrens, claim to have scientific evidence which does indeed prove the existence of ghosts, which sounds like a testable claim into which we can sink our investigative teeth. What we have found was a very nice couple, some genuinely sincere people, but absolutely no compelling evidence, end quote. While it was made clear that neither Perry nor Steve thought the Warrens could intentionally cause harm to anyone, they did caution that claims like the Warrens served to reinforce delusions and confuse the public about legitimate scientific methodology. That drives me fucking insane. Yeah. That drives me crazy because there are so many different scientific things, especially today, where... We have lots of different instruments, some of them being the same instruments, but some of them being even more advanced that yeah. show all of these things. It is almost indisputable at this point, but there are still skeptics that just hold on to their little science cap like it's their life and they ignore the science. No, Sorry. So I 100% I agree with you. That's why I said what I said earlier. Yeah. Where it's like there is some shit that science cannot prove. That doesn't necessarily mean that they just haven't proven it yet. It could be a possibility that there are other things out there that are unexplainable. Period. Doesn't matter what you use. It doesn't matter what you hypothesize. It just fucking happens. It just exists. We're not meant to explain <laughs> everything. No. So with that, I'm going to leave it up to you guys how much of this episode you believe or don't. I, for one, have been and will always be an avid believer and advocate for the Warrens along with the Perrin family, who we will be getting to momentarily. We are going to be starting with the history of the home itself along with its inhabitants, current and past, including the infamous villain of the Conjuring movie, Bathsheba Sherman, and a little on the demon behind the veil of the franchise, Valak. After that, we'll discuss the experiences in the house during the time the Perrin family lived there, their experience with the Warrens, and how the family fared after the fact, compiled from the first-hand accounts and interviews I have found on Andrea Perrin. Nice. I wish she was here as a guest host. However, not quite there yet. Maybe someday. <laughs> First, let's talk about Bathsheba. On March 10th, 1812, in Rhode Island, Bathsheba was born to parents Enoch Thayer, who lived from 1767 to 1848, and Hannah Goldthyth Thayer, born 1766. I'm sorry, Goldthyth Thayer? Yeah. yeah. Go Goldthyth Thayer. Yeah, Goldthyth. Wow. That's very <laughs> intense. There is not a death date for Hannah. Bathsheba was the second youngest of the couple's four children. She had brothers Nathan from Enoch's first marriage, born 1786, Enoch, born 1803, Josiah, born in 1811, and sister Arethusa, born in 1807. 
Yeah, these names are just I fucking... I was going to say, definitely give it to them for uh, yeah. uncommon names. I mean, this was Nathan. the 17 and 1800s, so sure, farm country, whatever. I mean, like, Nathan is the most <laughs> common name there. I'm guessing I'm going to go off of because when I get into it, like the biblical yeah. backgrounds and shit. But anyway, Bathsheba was named after her father's first wife, unlike the believed biblical significance of her name. Bathsheba grew up in Rhode Island with her family, then moved to Connecticut, where she met her husband, Judson Sherman. On March 10th of 1844, on her 32nd birthday, they married and moved to his farm back in Rhode Island. In 1851, she had a son named Herbert, her only child, as far as extensive census records indicate. She had three other children, but they didn't live long enough to have any tangible data on them besides birth and death dates. There was Isaiah, born 1845, no death date. Edward, born 1847, died in 1849. And George, born in 1853, with no death date. There were rumors of her being involved in witchcraft and occultism after, with it being said, a child under her care died by being impaled with a sewing needle. There was never any physical proof, but it was the 1800s. <laughs> Modern medicine and medical science couldn't be dependent on to save a sick child, so Herbert was her only kin to outlive her. She carried on until May 25th of 1885, when she went into a bout of paralysis that the doctors could not identify and never recovered, dying at the age of 73. We can now refer this incident today as being related to a stroke. Starting in with the real-life versus movie comparisons, to begin with, the farm that the Perrin family lived in was the old Arnold Estate in Harrisville, Rhode Island. Bathsheba never lived there. The movie goes on to claim that the farmhouse, aka the Arnold Estate, was built in 1863. Here's the problem. Bathsheba was born in 1812, based on the dates presented in the movie, she would have been born in 1831, married in 1863, and had her child in 1870. We all know that the movies can mess with timelines, no big deal, but of course there are so many more inaccuracies. So she still would have been alive at that time. Yes, but she didn't live there. Right. And we're going to get into like why she yeah. became the villain and stuff, which is ridiculous. But anyway, the movie claims that Bathsheba is related to Mary Esty, one of the women accused of witchcraft during the Salem witch trials. Mind you, Mary was a real woman in Salem, not a witch. The reason that witchcraft is even in the movie is because of the whole accusations against the real Bathsheba. That, and that somehow, like, 99% of Hollywood movies on witchcraft, it's tied to Satanism. Somehow. Yeah. And according to a quote from Lorraine in the movie, which is sacrifice babies to elevate their status in the eyes of Satan. I thought I smelled something burning. Damn it, Tori, you left it on too long. Damn it. Aw, now the horn daddy is going to be mad I burnt the roast again. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Moving on. <laughs> After Bathsheba kills her baby, she declares her love for Satan, cursed anyone who tried to take her land, and hung herself from the tree in the backyard. So, basically, the motivation behind the movie is that due to the continuous premature deaths of children, thus elevating the status and power of Bathsheba in Satan, the Perrin family provided a huge opportunity for her when they moved in in 1971 with their five daughters. Ah. Mm -hmm. Getting back to the real Bathsheba, over the years, her grave has fallen victim to vandalism and desecration due to the Conjuring movie. Oh. Fortunately, efforts have been started to raise money for the restoration. 
There were even claims in Andrea Perrin's novels made by a local man, Mr. McEachern, who described Bathsheba as, quote, bitter, vindictive, hateful, and unholy. He also claimed to have first-hand knowledge that Bathsheba would starve and beat her staff, yet she was a ravishing beauty and youth. What? <laughs> Never mind that she was basically the devil herself before she supposedly made a pact with Satan. <laughs> she was pretty. Like, <laughs> with what little there is available on her, there are very few proven facts about her. This includes census records, her will, and obituary. Census records from 1850 through 1880 show that Herbert was still living with his parents. In the 1880 census, it also shows that a 15-year-old girl named Charlotte Talbot was living in the home as well. Herbert's first marriage was to a young lady named Georgiana. The marriage didn't last long, however, as she died at the age of 22. Jesus. She is buried with the rest of the Sherman family at the Harrisville Cemetery. Her epitaph reads, Why should we grieve for one so pure? Our loss to her is gain. Her happiness is now secure. Our sorrows still remain. Herbert married for a second time to Miss Anna Jane Fair on December 4th of 1880. The pair had two sons, William, born 1881, and Fred, born 1883. Sadly, William died in 1900 at age nine. Oh, no. There have never been any sort of records or historic documentation that I could locate in regards to any child of Bathsheba's having died from a knitting needle to the head, being sacrificed to Satan, or any sort of scandal in the community placing blame on her. There are no records of any strange deaths or alleged wrongdoings of any type either. The three children of Bathsheba and Judson Sherman who died are buried right across from them in the Harrisville Cemetery. If you research the maps of the area, the 1845 map shows the land and the properties broken up by each family that owned all the land there. The names Sherman, Arnold, Taft, Maori, Germain, Aldrich, and others can be seen all over the map. In that small town area, most of these people were related to one another. The town was also very Christian, having established not one, but several churches in its early years. The Free Will Baptist, Episcopal, Berean Baptist, and the Laurel Hill Methodist churches. This close-knit community, where many were often related to one another, was full of God-fearing people, and the Shermans were one of the larger families in the area. In fact, Sherman Farm Road still exists today and is one of the larger roads that goes through town. So neat. When Bathsheba died on May 25th in 1885, Reverend A.H. Granger, a Baptist minister, gave the eulogy, and even the newspapers mentioned her passing, which was due to the paralysis due to stroke, as mentioned before, not hanging herself. There was never a note on her death certificate making any sort of claims that she turned into stone. As far as the respectful obituary in the newspaper, that is not something you would think a Christian community would do for someone they suspected of being a witch that murdered and sacrificed her own children to the devil. Yeah, no. Nope. Bathsheba was not a witch, nor was she a murderer, and it's very shameful that anyone would say such things which constitutes slander. Not only that, but, like, this poor woman lost several of her children. Fucking ow. When she died, she was interred next to Judson, who had preceded her in death several years prior. She had remarried, this time to Benjamin Green, although when she was buried, she was put with her first husband and children. Being buried with your first wife or husband was a common practice and actually still continues to this day in a lot of cemeteries. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I found that interesting too because I was like, I, I get that maybe back then, but now? Yeah. That's really fascinating to find out. 
In her will, Bathsheba was adamant that, along with giving her son a small amount of money, that the property would be used to educate her grandson, and that when he reached the age of 21, the balance of money would be handed over to him. It appears she had drawn her will up before the birth of her second grandson, which Aww, makes sense. Yeah. Cutting back to the whole why is she a demonic figure in the movies, let's start with the name. Yes, we know that in real life, Bathsheba was named after her father's first wife. However, me thinks that there is another reason for keeping the name. The first of which, Andrea Perrin, according to her books, claims that her mother, Carolyn, became a threat to Bathsheba because she challenged her role as matriarch and lusted after her father. Andrea continued on to say that one of the encounters was that her mother was stabbed in the leg by the spirit with a sewing needle, which was the same weapon supposedly lodged in the infant that died under Bathsheba's care. Now, I'm not disputing Andrea's claims of any of the attacks on the family. However, we do know that there was no proof, only rumors that that actually happened. Right. My second reasoning being that Bathsheba is a biblical name. Bathsheba was the biblical wife of David in the Torah. The part of her name Sheba could possibly be a mockery of the Queen of Sheba from the Hebrew Bible. I know that one is a bit of a stretch, but bear with me. This is tied religiously in the movie by Bathsheba making a mockery of the Christian faith, the knocking three times, for example, to mock the Holy Trinity. The birds crashing into the house also has potential religious symbolism, since birds are often used as Christian symbolism, i.e. doves, in their connection with the Holy Spirit. The biblical Bathsheba was also the father of King Solomon, the name of the king from the Lesser Key of Solomon, the source of the demonic lore, namely Valak, from The Conjuring 2, Annabelle spinoffs, and The Nun. The first known reference to the name Valak is found in the 17th century grimoire titled Clavicula Solemnis Regis, or the Key of Solomon. University Hertfordshire Professor Owen Davies, an expert of the history of ghosts and witchcraft, describes grimoires as books that contain a mix of spells, conjurations, natural secrets, and ancient wisdom. The Key of Solomon is a self-described guide to the ceremonial art of commanding spirits both good and evil. The Key of Solomon features King Solomon of the Old Testament fame who is renowned for his wisdom. At some point around the 2nd century BC, the idea spread that the king's realm of knowledge had also included certain secrets of astrology and magic. I don't doubt that one bit. I personally believe that if he was a real person, he was absolutely a witch. The grimoire bearing his name lists the 72 demons that the king supposedly vanquished during his reign, providing readers with their names and instructions for expelling them, should they come in contact. Valak, which is sometimes also spelled U-A-L-A-L-C, V-A-L-U, D-O-O-L-A-S, or V-O-L-A-C, I'm only spelling them out because the pronunciations are just garbage. Yeah, that, and I don't want you to have to figure it out for yourselves. Valu, Dulas, and Valak. Valak is the 62nd spirit listed in Solomon, according to which, quote, he appeareth like a boy with angel's wings riding a two-headed dragon. That sounds fun. Whoa. <laughs> His special power, according to the text, is finding snakes and hidden treasures while leading an army of 30 demons. Which makes sense, because if you go into The Conjuring 2, if you've seen that, she mentions that Valak is, like, the keeper of snakes or the demon of snakes. Something relating with snakes. Right. So it's accurate in that point. I gotta say, after this, we need to do a binge of the Conjuring universe movies. Oh, that's what, yeah, this is 
basically going to be... Leading up to? Yeah. No, hence, <laughs> hence why it started with this one. The Bible itself contains no reference to Solomon's 72 demons, but the key of Solomon was actually listed in the Vatican's Liborum Prohibitorum, or the list of prohibited books, which the church continuously updated until scrapping it altogether in 1966. The church considered the text not only non-religious, but heretical. However, to the dismay of many inquisitors, the grimoire was still found in the possession of many a Catholic priest. I wonder Shocker. why. <laughs> you kind of need to know about them to get rid of them. Yeah, which it makes me think, like, my theory is that the reason that it was still found in the possession of the priests is maybe that was the building blocks to the right of exorcism. Probably. Despite being banned, the grimoire remained hugely popular in Europe, and given the success of the Conjuring movies, it seems that its contents still hold a terrifying appeal to this day. The idea for Valak being a nun was a choice by director James Wan as a play on an attack on Lorraine's faith. That makes sense. Now, the lesser key, the one the movies are based off of, is known as the Lomegaton Clavicula Salominus, or simply Lomegaton. An anonymous Shut the fuck up, Tori. <laughs> Sorry, callbacks. An anonymous. I done fucked you up. You did. I'm sorry. I can't say the fucking word. An anonymously written grimoire on demonology. It was compiled in the mid 17th century, mostly from materials several centuries older. It is divided into five books. The Ars Goetia, the Ars Theurgia Goetia, Ars Paulina, Ars Almadel, and Ars Notoria. It is based on the Testament of Solomon and the ring mentioned within it that he used to seal the demons. I believe that the idea of Valak specifically originated in the Ars Goetia edition of the Lamegaton because it lists all 72 demons and how to summon them. The idea of Lorraine banishing Valak back to hell, or President Valak, as it is in the text, had to do with the traditional Roman ritual combined with her faith in God and her clairvoyant abilities in the movie. Okay. Why the creators chose to go with the lesser key is beyond me. It is proven that the key books have nothing to do with King Solomon in the Bible, however bastardized it's been since its origins, only that there's the ever-popular theory, as I said agree with, that he was a witch as you know, is heretical in of itself according to the Christian-slash-Catholic faith, so supposedly consorting with demons would fall into play into their eyes. But I digress. Bottom line, they did it for the money. It's always about the money. According to etymologists, the text is more properly called Lamegaton Clavicula Salomnus, or the Little Key of Solomon. The title Lesser Key, most commonly used, does not in fact occur in the manuscripts. A.E. Waite, in his 1898 Book of Black Magic and Pacts, does the term so-called greater key and lesser key to distinguish between the clavicula, salominus, and lamegaton. So he may have been the first one to coin it. The Latin term guetia refers to the evocation of demons or evil spirits. It is derived from the ancient Greek word guetia, meaning charm, witchcraft, or jugglery. Jugglery? Jugglery. I'm mad that that's kind of like what? Those damn jugglers. <laughs> Always I fucking mean, shit I up. Guess. Summoning demons. <laughs> Makes me think of the magician card in my Thelma deck, because it looks like he's literally juggling, juggling. all of them. Mm -hmm. Or the two of pentacles. True. In the medieval Renaissance Europe, Goetia was generally considered evil and heretical in contrast to Thurgia and Magia Naturalis, which were sometimes considered more noble. 
Well, yeah, because divine magic and natural magic seem a bit more on the light side as opposed to, hey, here's a book that lets you talk a scene. Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, in his Three Books of Occult Philosophy, writes, Now the parts of ceremonial magic are Goetia and Theurgia. Goetia is unfortunate by the commerces of unclean spirits made up of the rites of wicked curiosities, unlawful charms, and deprecations, and is abandoned and excreted by all laws. I suddenly feel like I'm answering for crimes against the Ministry of Magic. Yeah, really. Like, <laughs> what the fuck? Unlawful charms. <laughs> right there. It's like, the fuck did I do? I pissed off Cornelius Fudge. I mean, yeah. His middle name's Cornelius. Cornelius. It fucking works. Oh, God. The most obvious source for the Ars Goetia is Johann Ware's Pseudomonarchia Daemonium in his De Prestigious Demonium. Ware does not cite and is unaware of any other books in the Lemegaton suggesting that the Lemegaton was derived from his work, not the other way around. The order of the spirits changed between the two, for additional spirits were added to the later work and one spirit, Proofless, was omitted. The omission of Proofless, a mistake that also occurs in an edition of Pseudomonarchia Daemonum, cited in Reginald Scott's The Discovery of Witchcraft, indicates that the Ars Goetia could not have been compiled before 1570. Even so, it appears that the Ars Goetia is more dependent upon Scott's translation of Ware than on Ware's work itself. Additionally, some material came from Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's Three Books of Occult Philosophy, the Heptameron, the Pseudo Pietro Diabino, and the Magical Calendar. Ware's Officium Spiritum, which is likely related to a 1583 manuscript titled The Office of Spirits, appears to have ultimately been an elaboration on a 15th century manuscript titled Livre de Spirits, in which 30 of 47 spirits mentioned are nearly identical to the spirits in Ars Goetia. In a slightly later copy made by Thomas Rudd, who lived from 1583 to 1656, this portion was labeled Liber Melorum Spiritum Seu Goetia. And the seals and demons were paired with those of the 72 angels of the Shem Hamepharash, an ancient Hebrew text containing the supposed actual name of God, which were intended to protect the conjurer and to control the demons he summoned. So basically they're saying that the Shem Hermaphrosh is God's name. Yeah. Which I've always heard Yahweh, but I guess Hermaphrosh is God. Anyway. I've, I've heard a lot of different things recently. I heard that Jealous is his name. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Which kind of makes sense, but you know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to believe anymore. The angelic names derived from a manuscript by Blaise de Vigner, whose papers were also used by Samuel Little McGregor Mathers, Wow, that's what a, a mouthful. From 1854 to 1918, in his works for the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, a secret society devoted to the study and practice of occult hermeticism and metaphysics during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, specifically from 1887 to 1903, focusing mainly on theurgy and spiritual development. Mind you, this is the order that Aleister Crowley and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes, hailed from. That's cool. I didn't realize that Sir Doyle was a member of this society. Yeah, I knew that kind of blows Crowley my mind. was, but I did not know Sir Doyle. <laughs> Rudd may have derived his copies of Liber Malorum Spiritum from a now lost work by Johannes Trithemius, who taught Agrippa, who in turn taught Ware. 
This portion of the work was later translated by Samuel Little McGregor Mathers and published by Aleister Crowley in 1904 under the title The Book of Goetia of Solomon the King. Crowley added some additional invocations previously unrelated to the original work, including some invocations in the Enochian language, the supposed language of the angels, as well as essays describing the rituals as psychological exploration instead of demon summoning. Huh. I am so sorry about all that just now. <laughs> I look into the background of one fake demon from a movie, but there is so much more information on this that I am salivating to read, mostly having to do with the gold dawn that we will absolutely be covering in yes, the future we need to but i am not going to drag you down this rabbit hole with me any more than i have already i can't help it it is fascinating god damn it i love history <laughs> especially etymology i gobble that shit up i swear every hyperlink is a fucking trap i go to look up where the stupid demon originates and it's like oh piece of candy oh piece of candy oh piece of candy yep. <laughs> i I have a problem. Hi, my name is Lori, and I'm a member of the HWA, History Horse Anonymous. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I gotta remember that one. History Horse Anonymous. <laughs> Damn. Oh God. Now down to the meat and bones of this episode. The Perrin family haunting. Most of the story I will be telling from interviews from Andrea Perrin, who, as a result of her family's experience, went on to write a trilogy of books that are the top sellers in the subject of the paranormal. Andrea herself has stated that, quote, if anyone wants to know the true story in all its glory and gore, that's where to find it. You're not going to find it on Wikipedia. You're not going to find it on a thousand other websites that have decided to take our story and to twist it into what they want to suit their own purposes. The real true story is in the books and not all of it is in the books because there were incidents that were so profound, so disturbing that my sisters did not want them included because they did not know at the time how this text, this literature would be received in the paranormal community, end quote. In fact, when she was writing the books, Andrea didn't know there was a worldwide paranormal community, like at all. She had wow. zero idea about it. She didn't know if anyone would want to read their story. I, for one, am glad that, one, they got to tell their story, and two, that I have the means to retell it to others because it is, as she said, profound. One of the most that I have come across between the history of the land itself, how the family came to live there, their experiences, and the success that followed with the books, documents, and movies. Right. Like, it is fucking nuts. The home's land precedes its colonial records by thousands of years while it was occupied by the Nipmuc and other local tribes prior to Roger Williams purchasing the land as part of the establishment of the colony of Ireland and Providence Plantations. Side note, Roger Williams, born December 21st, 1603, and died March 1683, was an English-born New England Puritan minister, theologian, and author who founded Providence Plantations which became the colony of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations and later the state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. I think they dropped the plantations part now, finally. Yeah. Took he, you fucking long enough. Seriously. He was a staunch advocate for the religious freedom, separation of church and state, and fair dealings with the American Indians. That's nice. Mm. I only knew him from the Roger Williams Zoo. Williams was expelled by Puritan leaders from the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and he established Providence Plantations in 1636 as a refuge offering what he termed liberty of conscience. In 1638, he founded the first Baptist church in America in Providence, 
Those from New England may recognize the locations he's tied to, i.e. the Roger Williams Zoo, like Tori said. Right. And the Robert, and the Roger Williams University. I almost said Robin Williams. The Robin no. <laughs> The Robin I mean, they should Robin have a university Williams. after him. Oh, that'd God, be that man was a saint. Place. He was too good for this world. He really was. I'm so glad we grew up with him, though. I really am. Yeah. So, having been expelled from the Massachusetts Bay Colony for espousing freedom of religious worship and separation from church and state, Roger Williams established Providence Plantations in 1636 in Narragansett, Rhode Island. In 1639, Gloucester, New Berryville, Rhode Island, became part of Providence Plantations, including the estate deed to the Richardson family. The land was deeded in 1680 and was surveyed by John Smith, one of the original Virginia colonists. Like the actual John Smith from fucking Pocahontas. Yeah. The John Smith. Roger Williams believed that the best way to preserve the land was to deed large parcels to those who chose to follow him and his teachings. He did so to protect it from rather overt encroachment from Connecticut and Massachusetts. (laughs) The original estate deeded to the Richardsons was more than a thousand acres. It was subsequently sold off in parcels to family in the area, some who are still there hundreds of years later. Because women had no rights to property at this time in history, their estate transferred through marriage from the first colonists, the Richardson family, to the Arnold family. From the Arnold family, it transferred to the Butterworths, then to the Kenyans, before being purchased by the parents in 1970. In 1980, the Schwartz family purchased the property and it sold to Norma Sutcliffe in 1987. Corey and Jan Heinzen purchased the property in 2019 from Norma and launched the business to allow investigations and day tours. In May of 2022, Jacqueline Nunez purchased the property and is continuing in growing the business. The house as it now stands was completed in 1736, 40 years before the signing of Declaration of Independence. The homestead has survived countless storms, King Philip's War, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, and the unbridled growth of the Industrial Age in America. Well, so this house is definitely a testament to the need to preserve history. Eight generations of one extended family had lived and died in it, and apparently some of them never left, or at least visit with some frequency. Hmm. That's really cool. (laughs) So this actually makes it a true colonial home. Right. Because it predates all that shit, which is fantastic, and it's still standing in its original state. That's kind of awesome in and of itself. Again, history. Sorry. I want to know how expensive it is to go there. Mm. Probably a pretty penny. Yeah. The Perrin family's haunting began strangely enough before they even knew about the Arnold estate. During one interview, Andrea had been asked, looking back, if she believed that her mother Carolyn's seemingly impulsive decision to buy the house was, in fact, the beginning of the haunting. That perhaps something was specifically calling out to her. Andrea responded, I'll go back further than that. I think it was the day that my father brought a puppy home in 1969 and my mother swept it up in her arms and she said, this is a special dog and she needs a special name. And she closed her eyes and cocked her head to the heavens and she came back with Bathsheba. That's how my dog got named. Bathsheba is an unusual name. (laughs) Creepy as fuck. Yep, not cool. She continues saying, we were all little kids. We didn't know the biblical relevance of the name. We didn't know where that came from. None of us had ever heard it before. So we immediately abbreviated our dog's name to Sheba. After she died, everything changed. Part of the reason that we moved was because we lived in the suburb of Providence and I was walking my dog and she pulled away from me, ran into traffic, and was killed. Oh no. I had a nervous breakdown. As a 10-year-old, a complete nervous breakdown. 
I changed. I was so devastated. And my mother said, that's it. I want away from the traffic. I want away from the chaos. I want away from the neighbors. I want out of here. She's the one who found the farm. My father kept saying, Carolyn, what are you talking about? And she found the farm and the farm found her. I am the eldest daughter of the Perrin family. My parents, Roger and Carolyn, had five girls. Myself, Nancy, Christine, Cindy, and April. My mother found this magical place in the country in June of 1970. We didn't move in until January of 1971, even though we all felt as if we already lived there, which was the strangest thing of all. We felt like it was precisely where we belonged from the moment we all stepped on the property. It felt like home. Even before it was our home, I believe it was our destiny. Well, she's pointing out it seems like she's saying something just compelled them to go there. Right. Even with naming their dog Bath Sheba, it's like, where the fuck did you pull that from? Yeah. <laughs> While moving in, Roger and Carolyn met with the property's previous renter to discuss maintenance. They only had one piece of advice for the family as they settled into their new home. For the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. Whoa. Yeah, I'd be like, I'm sorry, fucking what? What a Why? <laughs> the couple thought that was an odd statement and brushed it off. They would soon learn that it was a mistake to ignore the warning. Well, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> the day the family moved in, in January of 1971, the girls had made an immediate encounter with a spirit. None of them had ever had a paranormal experience before then, so when Andrea first saw the spirit, she didn't think much of it. There had been movers coming in and out of the house all day, so she thought the man was just another one of them. Until her sister saw the same person a few minutes later. Except this time, the moving man vanished in front of her eyes. Oh. Andrea recalls that there was no indication that it was an apparition. It was not transparent. It was a whole person that appeared, as she says, just as much flesh and blood as me or you. Huh. Like, it looked just like a normal fucking person. That's terrifying. The hauntings themselves didn't start with anything scary. In fact, they began with a series of petty annoyances. Cindy had gone downstairs for a little while one day, and upon returning to her bedroom, found that her beloved Little People toy set had been moved from where she left it. Instead of it being spread out for her to play with, all the pieces had been shoved underneath her bed. Naturally, she suspected her sisters and approached each one to ask them why they had moved her toy set and each one insisted that they had not done anything to the playset. Wow. She's just like, what did you do? And they're like, we didn't do shit. We don't know what you're talking about. As the other girls' toys had gone missing as well, the finger-pointing started, and their relationship became strained, which was odd for them because they usually just peas in a pod yeah. all the time. Toys continued to go missing from their bedrooms, appearing outside, in other rooms, or out in the barn. I'd be pissed. <laughs> like, my toy just ended up outside in the barn. I'd be like, who the fuck put it out there? When Carolyn had enough, she sat them down and told them to knock off the fighting. This snapped the girls out of their negative attitudes toward each other, and in turn made them suspect that someone or something was in the house moving their things. Other objects around the house would be moved, such as a broom, along with piles of dirt that would appear on freshly cleaned floors. So nothing major or violent. Just, just really annoying. Yeah. <sighs> that that would also piss me off, too, as an adult. I, 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 I just fucking clean this floor. Could you not? Maybe? Like, could you maybe, I don't know, throw a fucking pan? Don't put dirt on my floor. <laughs> <laughs> Get your muddy footprints out of here. <laughs> but as time went on, more and more suspicious and sinister things began happening. 
One example being where Andrea would be woken up at 5.15 a.m. some days by spirits who smelled like rotting flesh and would lift the girls' beds. Oh, God. (laughs) According to Andrea, the family researched the history of the home and found at least a dozen people who killed themselves or had a tragic death in the home or on the property. Regarding the history and deaths in the house, the family, Carolyn discovered, that lived in the house for eight generations had a stunning number of children that died under strange circumstances, either in or near the house. Some drowned in a nearby creek, others hanged themselves in the attic, and at least one was murdered. Holy shit. Several benevolent spirits materialized as well as the malignant ones. Some spirits would act up and make loud noises for attention when guests were around. A father, son, and dog would appear at the top of the staircase and stare at a wall as if it were a window, never making eye contact with the parents. Andrea said she even caught a sight of a spirit who was a spitting image of herself as an old woman dressed in 17th century attire. Whoa, (laughs) that would freak me out. Another time, Carolyn saw two men seated in the dining room. One man recognized her presence, got the other man's attention, and pointed towards her. That sounds like an opposite dimension situation. Yeah. Like, either that or the proverbial the ghost didn't know they're dead and think she's the ghost. Andrea states, We discovered very quickly, immediately in fact, upon moving into the house, that we were not there alone. We were sharing the space and we had to come to terms with that. It took a long time to happen and there was a lot of fear, anxiety, shock, and secrecy. When you're a little girl and you question your own sanity, when you can't even believe you just saw what you saw, you are naturally afraid to tell anyone else about a supernatural event. You don't want your family to think you've lost your mind, or worse yet, lying. It is a lot of pressure to put on a child. My father just wanted them to go away, to pretend none of it was real, just a figment of our imagination. But it started happening to him too, and he really couldn't deny it anymore. In fact, Roger was unaware for many years of the activity happening to his wife and daughters because they wouldn't tell him. He wasn't home enough for it to happen consistently, for one. He was a skeptic, and he didn't believe in ghosts. He was also unwilling to move out of a house he had bought with all his hard work. I mean, it's a big house, a big property, I understand. Especially when you don't know what's really going on. Yeah, and at that point, nothing really, like, super, super bad was starting, besides the lifting of the beds and stuff like that. So I can understand him being just like, oh, it's an old house, you're freaked out, the stereotypical non-believing dad in movies and shit. She continues saying, We all experienced encounters with spirits. Some were unpleasant, some were lovely, cordial, and communicative, some benign to benevolent to oblivious to mean-spirited. The spirits were just like us, a wide variety of personalities. Only one of the spirits ever self-identified, a little boy named Oliver Richardson, who my sister April befriended. He told her that was his name in life. When we moved out of the farmhouse, we wondered if the spirits would travel with us. My sister Cindy said, no, they're trapped here. If they could have gone with us when we left, they would have because they loved us. And the feeling was mutual for the most part. By the time we left the farm, it felt like we were leaving our extended family behind. For some of us, it was a relief. For others, a heartbreaking loss. There was only one really malignant spirit in the house who was so mean-spirited toward my mother, but we do not believe it was Bathsheba. My mother feels exactly the same way about her as I do. She thinks Bathsheba got royally screwed in The Conjuring, given the role of the evil spirit by default. I'm Bathsheba's greatest defender, and though I can't absolve her of guilt, I can and do give her the full benefit of the doubt. In life, she'd been accused of practicing witchcraft, sacrificing an infant to Satan in exchange for eternal youth and beauty, 
There is absolutely no evidence to prove she did anything of the sort, though it was all based on rumor and innuendo. The accusation stuck. She was involved in an inquest, but was never charged with the crime. My father firmly believes that the entity that haunted and taunted my mother was most likely Mrs. Arnold. She had apparently decided after the death of her husband to take her own life by hanging. That occurred in the barn, according to the town historian. At the time, he told my mother that a farmhand cut her down and carried her into the farmhouse because suicide was so frowned upon. I think she was probably an angry spirit, or bereft. I also think spirits who remain earthbound do so for a number of reasons. Again, pure speculation on my part, but I really do think they either died so suddenly or tragically they are not yet aware they are dead, or they are lingering in some kind of limbo." End quote. The family would also stay away from the dirt-floored cellar, which was a spirit hotspot, except when the house's heating equipment would fail, forcing Roger to make repairs. Andrea said he would go downstairs and feel this cold, stinking presence behind him. This is also later noted that the family thinks that it was Mrs. Arnold that liked to hang out in the basement a lot. Maybe she was fucking with the system so she could stay close to Roger if he was the one to go down and fix stuff? Maybe. Regarding the legitimate deaths that I was able to find information on, there are a few, mostly in comparison to the ones that Andrea brings up in her books. The first is Mrs. John Arnold, who, as I just said, Roger believed to be the main antagonist in the house. She not only tormented Carolyn, she apparently, as I just said, had the hots for Roger and did not want his wife to have him. Wow. (laughs) So first, Mrs. John Arnold. In her book, Andrea speaks about her and how she hung herself from the rafters in the barn at the age of 93. She also speaks on an encounter that Carolyn had. She had gone into the barn, there was a hand scythe hanging above her, and flew at her neck. The thick leather jacket she had on thankfully took the brunt of the blow. Jesus! fucking hell, man. Well, I mean, that kind of does support the theory that Mrs. Arnold wanted Roger. Can you see this? This jealous old broad just chilling in the bar and sees Carolyn and is like, I'll show you who he wants. Can't give head if you don't got one. Oh, God. (laughs) Damn. Shots fired. Oh, my God. That's all I can picture, especially if it's just like she was just so about him all the time. <laughs> but anyway. Fucking poor Carolyn. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Years later, after that incident, Carolyn learned of the suicide and that the scythe had fallen from the same beam that Mrs. Arnold used to off herself. Wow. There is an obituary on a Mrs. John Arnold dated 1866, but she would have been 50 years old at the time of her death and she had hung herself in the storage room of the house. Her husband had gone upstairs and found the storeroom locked. Thinking something was wrong, he went through a window onto a shed roof and into the window of the locked room. There, he found his wife suspended from her wardrobe hook with a very small cord. She also had a loaded gun, a dirk knife, and a file of mercury laid out on the floor in front of her. Jeez. Yeah, as well. See, if one doesn't work, another will. Pretty much. (laughs) As well as funeral attire neatly folded on the bed of another room, intending for those to dress her in for burial. What? So she was just ready to fucking go. According to the records, the route the husband took would not have been part of the structure of the barn either back then or now. Don't get me wrong, I'm not discrediting Carolyn's experience whatsoever, but maybe she encountered another malevolent entity in the barn other than Mrs. Arnold? Maybe. According to another news article, John Arnold would also later take his life after the death of his wife. According to Andrea, he originally did so by ingesting horse liniment. To records, however, he did kill himself, but not by ingesting horse liniment. Rather, Paris Green. 
Wild Horse Liniment contains the ingredients of snake oil, which is a product from the 18th century China made from the fat of a Chinese water snake. It also contains menthol, witch hazel, arnica, rosemary, and capsaicin. Although the ingredients combined are used for pain management, like sore muscles, perhaps maybe toxic if ingested or just too much of it. None of that sounds like it would be... Yeah, that's weird. I mean, the... I mean, Amica, well, no, because that's... Witch hazel or capsaicin, maybe? I mean, capsaicin is just the thing that's spicy. I don't know. That's the, So when you said capsaicin, I'm like, it's a spicy pill. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's literally just the chemical in, in spicy things as a defense mechanism for plants. Mm. It makes no sense, like, how that could... Yeah, how that would be lethal. Whereas Paris Green is a highly toxic crystalline powder that was used as a pigment in paints, wallpaper, and fabrics. Which, I mean, either could have happened, but I feel that Paris Green was the most likely cause of death because, one, of its high toxicity, coupled with the actual obituary from 1911, but regardless of the how, it still points to the factor of yet another death tied to the land. Original Paris Green would have things like asbestos and lead in it because that's yeah. the stuff like um, Plaster of Paris is what they use now to create popcorn ceilings. Mm-hmm. So that's what it was originally made out of, and those were all highly toxic. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to go with that. Especially before 1979, I want to say. Yeah, and yeah. he died in 1911. So, so it was definitely highly toxic. Yeah, I'm going to go with Paris Green for the win with BT that. dubs if you've lived in a house before 1979, built before 1979, get your paint tested. Seriously. Just saying. Next, we have Jarvis Smith and Edwin Arnold. According to Roger, he found information on two men who froze to death underneath the blacksmith shop on the property. According to the obituaries, however, the two men did die of exposure. Edward died of exposure in 1903 when he was walking home drunk one night and fell asleep against a stone wall a mile and a half from the property. He may not have died on the property itself, but he was a former owner of the Arnold Farm. That, and if you remember, when it was originally deeded, the property was on a thousand acres. That's a lot, a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. A lot. Jarvis Smith had been found dead in 1901 due to exposure as well. His body was in the shed 200 feet from the house, died on or tied to the property in some way. Mind you, when I found this research, I had gone through several articles that were written by skeptics trying to disprove Andrea's information. I can respect trying to find the truth and wanting someone to be accurate with their claims and the historical information to back it up. So when I do my research, I try to cover all angles, then I conclude. I personally believe the parents and will always have their back, but I will also include the findings I have providing physical documents regarding the property. And in Andrea's defense, she does state in the book that her family received this information from the town's 90-year-old historian. I don't know what kind of personal research the family did, but it could also have been a case of the historian getting some information wrong. Right. Moving on. The last death I found was that of Prudence Arnold. Andrea states that this girl had been raped and murdered by a local farmhand who then killed himself. According to the story in the newspaper from 1849, Prudence was an 11-year-old girl, and William Knowlton, 22, had found her in an upstairs bedroom and slit her throat with a straight razor. He then tried to use the razor to kill himself after, but found the blade too dull. After an official inquiry was made on the matter, William confessed that he had done this because Prudence had turned down his offer of marriage, which she had agreed to four months prior to her murder. She was 11! I mean, part of the course for the time. But still, yeah. she mentally, 
Yeah. Mentally and physically, eleven year old. Something that they didn't seem to grasp back then. Marriage she was half his age. Marriage aside, an eleven year old promises you something. Then four months later they're like, nah, I don't feel like it. That's a fucking typical kid. Sorry, dude. Yeah. There is no mention of rape or sexual assault of any kind in the paper. That being said, any types of attacks of that nature were not introduced until the Crown Court paper in 1866 in England, only describing the rape of the victim as a woman that appeared to be, quote, very ill after lying in a fainting state for some time. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's how they described rape back then, when it was first introduced. Now, the authors of the articles I found regarding these deaths state that the people mentioned had not in fact died anywhere near nor on the farm and were not even related to the farm in any way. Some of them either just happened to share the same last names as the owners of the farms or they had died in properties miles away from it. I personally credit this potential mishap to the town historian that the parents conferred with. Record keeping wasn't exactly the greatest between the 17th to early 20th centuries, so he could have given them the information he had as it was documented. Right. They didn't have, like, jack shit for that back then. Seeing as, what, like I mentioned earlier, with Bathsheba's children, they didn't live long enough to be on a census. And a couple of them lived to be, like, two years old. Right. So you'd think that's still, like, today, that is marked into records and stuff like that. Back then, they're just like, fuck it. They didn't care. Oh, we'll get it in a couple of years. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> if you survive long enough. I want to keep the podcast focused on content that entertains, informs, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. Your support would help the show grow so much, so I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take 30 seconds. It's glow.fm forward slash something wicked. That's glow.fm forward slash s-o-m-e-t-h-i-n-g-w-i-c-k-e-d. We're asking for $3 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. If something wicked is part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please visit glow.fm forward slash something wicked and support us any way you can today. It's dead simple and again will take no more than 30 seconds. Click the link in the show notes, pay with Apple or Google Pay, and click the link of the podcast player that you want to use. You can listen anywhere at any time. Happy listening! Getting back to the experiences in the house, Andrea stated that it wasn't until a good couple of years into moving that she noticed the real threat, the oppression of her mother. It was then that the girls noticed that their mother was different, that things started really happening. Carolyn had made a connection with a local woman named Fran Grand Cedarback. <laughs> That's a hell of a name, too. Fran Grand Cedarback. Yep. <laughs> Whose family lived in a haunted house in Chipatra, so they could relate. They also did normal friend things like antiquing and buying vintage clothing. They were very drawn to the 17th and 18th centuries. I can relate. Yes. <laughs> After a while, the girls noticed Carolyn's voice starting to change. It was much higher pitched. This happened in a very strange, gradual progression. Carolyn became more and more depressed. She was shrinking away, not eating properly. She was, at this point, trying to survive on a diet of coffee and cigarettes. It does not work. Don't do it. I feel called out. 
That's why I, I said that. I feel real cold out. <laughs> Let me just sip my coffee for a moment. Going hungry fucking sucks. But trust me, don't follow that diet. Please don't. <laughs> Caffeine and nicotine. The only thing that gets me to function around fucking people. <laughs> it's the only thing keeping the body counts down. <laughs> <sighs> the, <Anyway. laughs> war- the Warrens first arrived at the family's house in October of 1973. Unlike the movie, Carolyn did not seek out their help. It was, in fact, a neighbor who had heard of their troubles and contacted the Warrens to help them. The neighbors gave them the parents' address and they just showed up at the door. It was actually Lorraine that identified Bathsheba as the malignant spirit in the house, knowing nothing of the history, but she blamed everything on her. Even the puncture wound that Carolyn had received on her calf while napping on the couch that had been caused by the sewing needle that she used to kill the baby. Like, Lorraine straight up just said that. Like, Mm. she's like, Bathsheba did it. Like, to everything. One of the things that stuck out to me in the interview was when she was speaking about the Warrens was the fact that she said the most profound line in the film when Ed said, every time we do one of these investigations, it takes a piece of Lorraine. Because it was true. They did a huge piece. And the Warrens would go on later saying that this house was one of the most dark, profound hauntings that they ever had to deal with, which more than likely contributed to a severe spiritual attack on Lorraine's mind. Referring to the accusations of Bathsheba being a malignant spirit in the house that would torment and appear to the family, Andrea had this to say. She was vilified and it wasn't her fault. I'm not saying she didn't do what she was accused of. I have no way of knowing. I will go to my grave being her advocate and her great defender, because I have no proof that she murdered her baby in that house. There is no proof of that anywhere, and the woman is buried on hollowed ground. I think that the apparition with the broken neck that appeared to my mother that was so threatening to her was long dead before Bathsheba was ever born. She spoke with a thick brook, almost like a Scottish brook, according to my mother. I heard her once as well. That wasn't Bathsheba's voice. I heard Bathsheba as well, but she was not part of the Richardson or the Arnold family. I feel like The Conjuring did Bathsheba an injustice, but only because they relied on the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren. My mother had no idea who they were when they showed up at our door. Somebody else had told them we were having a problem at our house and gave them the address. They showed up the night before Halloween in 1973. Lorraine walked into the house, and to her credit, she said something because she went over to our old black stove, put her hand on the corner, and covered her eyes, and she said, I sense a malignant presence in the house. Her name is Bathsheba. But from once she gained my mother's trust to speak with her about our experiences, and we were all well into our second year and approaching our third year, so a lot had happened. She blamed everything on Bathsheba because that was her sense of things. That's what she perceived. That this was this woman who was attached to the house even though she was not related to the family that built or lived in it. She was a neighbor. End quote. Maybe it's because the land originally was a thousand acres and she was a neighbor, so she may have come over to visit. She liked the house. I don't fucking know. It just baffles me that they're basing, or Lorraine is basing everything negative in the house off of Bathsheba because of old ass rumors and the fact that she was in the same area. Right. That doesn't actually make much sense. No. Andrea said that the Warren style of investigation is very different from what it is like today. Their approach uses as much academic as it was perceptive. Lorraine being a psychic medium, she was the one doing the work in terms of connecting, hearing messages, and sensing whereas Ed was very concerned about the impact that it was having on the five vulnerable children, and he interviewed the children. 
April would not tell them about her little friend upstairs because she was afraid that they were powerful enough to take him away and she didn't want to lose him because she cared about him and she was too young to understand that his interactions with her were from the other side. She was only seven years old when the Warrens first came around, so very young, very impressionable, and she wanted to protect her friend Oliver from them. Understandable. Right. The rest of the family felt it was okay to tell the Warrens everything, so there are many aspects of their case files that are accurate. Unfortunately, that got lost in translation from files to movie, with Andrea stating that about 95% of the film was to Hollywood standards. It was their selling story. Continuing on that trope, Andrea states that unlike in the film, quote, representing us as godless heathens, that's not true, end quote. In the movie, the family states that they don't do the church thing and that none of the kids are baptized, so Ed says that because of that, them being there will only make things worse, which it kind of did in real life, but not for that reason. Roger Perrin went to a private Catholic school and was an altar boy, even meant to become a priest. Carolyn converted to Catholicism when she married him. All five of the daughters were baptized and confirmed through the Catholic Church. Wow. So, yeah. Andrea continues saying, To say that we were people that had no spiritual attachment was a gross inaccuracy. We were profoundly attached to God when we had moments of crisis in that house. It was only imploring God's intervention that stopped it. It seems possible that this change was made in the film to add conflict as the church wasn't initially willing to help the family because they weren't baptized. This is partly what leads Ed in the film to conduct the exorcism rather than a priest, even though that never happened regardless of the parents being Catholic or not. One element of the story that the film did not invent was that Carolyn's voice wouldn't record on tape. That's fucking creepy. That is really creepy. Yeah, Andrea told reporters of 757 Paranormal, quote, very often recordings of Carolyn would come back blank, end quote. Lorraine's theory was that Carolyn's voice didn't record because it wasn't really her talking, it was the spirit attached to her, which that doesn't make sense. Kind of. I mean, well, especially for the types of recording devices that they had back then, spirits come up on those kinds of recordings. Yeah, so... A lot easier than the digital recordings we have now. It makes me wonder, though, what type of energy was around her that could... Because I, I have heard the recordings of this. Right. And it's it's weird because you hear Ed talking and asking her questions and then Carolyn goes to respond, but there's nothing there. But while she's answering, he's doing the, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, so it's not like an entire audio clip was just cut out. Like you can still hear his voice. You just can't hear hers. So unless it might be a case of them wanting to be heard. It's like, if you don't want to be heard or you don't want to be recorded, they tend to not like doing the flash photography thing to Mm -hmm. catch spirits. They can delay that flash. They can stop your camera from working if they really don't want to be seen. All of this came to a blinding realization on the night of the seance in 1974. Over the year, the Warrens had shown up to the house six times to conduct their investigations. Mind you, Roger was away for most of them because he didn't want anything to do with nor acknowledge it. There was no exorcism, but what happened that night was, according to Andrea, the stuff of nightmares. She recalls that horrific night saying, I thought I was going to pass out. My mother began speaking a language not of this world in a voice not of her own. Her chair levitated and she was thrown across the room. She said it was the most terrifying night of her life, which I I could agree with that. If I saw, you know, my mom just like speaking in fucking devil tongue and then gets yeeted across the room, I think I'd shit myself. Yeah, probably. What? During that fateful night, I was certain I had seen my mother die. What everyone present in the house witnessed left a permanent impression. The night of the seance was a gruesome event, shocking and horrific, the definition of childhood trauma. 
My mother's body was rolled into a ball. It was absolutely heart-stopping hearing her scream, watching her writhe in pain. I thank God every day she has no memory of it, although she remembers everything else perfectly well. There was no blood and gore involved, nothing like how the film portrayed this incident, but it was still haunting. It wasn't Bathsheba that attacked my mother that night, but whatever it was, it was incredibly powerful. Certainly powerful enough to claim her life if it wanted to. My father thinks she was possessed for a few minutes because she spoke in a language that does not exist on this planet. The spirit that attacked her levitated the chair in which she sat and threw her from the middle of our dining room to the center of our parlor. Every single person in that house heard her head strike the floor. The medium collapsed on the table, unconscious. She was begging for disaster, and we got it. My mother was knocked unconscious. The priest was quivering in the corner of the room, white as a sheet. Everyone else who witnessed it, myself included, was dumbstruck by a horror show, stunned into silence. We'll never forget it. Those who observed it were scared to death and scarred for life. The film portrayed a Hollywood scene of Ed and Lorraine casting out a so-called demon that possessed my mother, and everybody lived happily ever after. That's not what happened. Not at all. Sometimes there is no happy ending. Sometimes survival is a success story all on its own. Andrea wonders why if Lorraine was so certain that Bathsheba was the bad entity causing everything, why she would invite a medium and a priest to conduct a seance to determine who the malignant spirit was. I'd wonder the same fucking thing. Yeah. She, Andrea, feels big mistakes were made and only made things worse. She doesn't believe in her heart that the Warrens did anything malicious, that they truly wanted to help the family, and they were in over their heads. Lorraine admitted that fact to Andrea in 2013 when she spent a weekend with her in California with WB and New Line Cinema, who were afraid to tell the real story. Lorraine said that from the moment they crossed the threshold, they walked into something they were not prepared for. Even Ed, prior to his death, went on record saying that the parent family haunting, in his own words, was the most intense, most compelling, most disturbing, and most significant of all the paranormal investigations that he and Lorraine ever conducted which is why it turned out to be the first in the film series. Right. But it's also what confused James Wan because he is an aficionado of the paranormal, particularly well-versed in the Warren cases, and he never heard of their story. And that is because Carolyn told Lorraine after she was later attacked in the cellar of their new home when Lorraine called the day after that, quote, we're not doing this, please don't ever call me again. And Lorraine never did. And yes, I will explain that with more context later on because I know how vague it sounds now. Right. <laughs> After the seance, Roger was pissed. He straight up decked Ed in oh the face God. and kicked both of them out. He was like, get the fuck out of my house and just decked him. So when the Warrens left the house that night, they didn't even know if Carolyn was dead or alive. Wow. They came back a couple of months later, just prior to Halloween, to see how she was doing, if she was still alive. Carolyn opened the door and saw that it was them. She did not invite them in. <laughs> she asked them if they returned her notebook that Lorraine had borrowed with all of her recollections, the historical research on the property. It was about two, three inches thick. Of all the countless hours of research... After Lorraine swore to Carolyn that she would borrow it, Xerox everything and return it, and failed to do so, Carolyn was disgusted and she closed the door and said, we're done here. Yeah, I don't blame Aww. her. Needless to say, the relationship did not end in all sunshine and rainbows as it did in the movie. The family has never seen the notebook since, and it's in Andrea's understanding through one of the producers of the film that Carolyn's notebook, with all of her sketches and her descriptions of the events that happened in the house, 
were sold as a part of the case files of the Warrens, and the family should have no expectation of ever seeing that notebook again, which Carolyn considered as a part of her legacy to leave to her children. Wow. Yeah, so... That's fucking brutal. Yeah, so Lorraine pulled a low blow Uh. there, unfortunately, with that. I hope it wasn't intentional. Andrea believes that Lorraine kept it because she believed it to be a haunted item. That it was something that no one else should see. But we all know that Lorraine was a collector of things, and that's how the Warren Museum came to be. After the encounter with the Warrens, Carolyn didn't have contact with them for the next six years, the remainder of time they lived in that house. Which, side note, it does make me think if she just, like, fucking absconded with the notebook. Yeah. Because she's just like, this is haunted. I don't want to sound mean, but I wonder how many other haunted items that came from families or cases that she was just like this is haunted let me just take this from you completely it makes me really think on that i wonder when asked very bluntly why the hell does the family continue to live there after what they experienced especially after the seance andrea responded there are many answers to that question Yes, as all hell was breaking loose at the farmhouse, but the same held true for the country, politically, socioeconomically, and in every other way. As we reflect back on that tumultuous time, the singular answer is clear to me. I believe we were supposed to live there. My father was not having paranormal encounters because he was so busy out on the road trying to keep that roof over our heads. He wasn't having the same experiences we were having, and when he did come home exhausted, the last thing he wanted to hear was my mother saying, Roger, I think we have ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) No, he didn't want to believe in ghosts. He refused to even acknowledge the concept and was unwilling to sell the farm he just moved heaven and earth to buy. Sadly, he questioned my mother's veracity, and we never told him anything because if he didn't believe her, he certainly wouldn't believe us. The truth of it took decades to emerge. Many years later, he admitted to me that he was terrified he'd moved his family into an environment where he had no control. So at least he acknowledged it. Yeah, it was just under the thing of, he he was probably doing the like, you know, ignore it, it'll, it'll go away thing. I don't want my family hurt, but they can't do anything. Right. They can't move. They can't, he was struggling to keep them afloat. And I guess from his perspective, more of a protective thing, even though it was not really helping because- I mean, like- even nowadays in the friggin' housing market we live in, if this house were demonically possessed, what are we gonna do? We can't afford to move somewhere else. We'd have to try and kick their asses. Yep, pretty much. (laughs) When they initially left the farm in 1980, Nancy refused to leave with them. It fractured their family to sell the house because they never all lived under the same roof again. Nancy was so upset the house got sold that she became the new owner's babysitter. She offered to stay on as the caretaker, but the family left without her. When they were leaving down the driveway, Andrea looked up at Nancy and said, Mom, look at the window behind Nancy. Nancy was standing on the front porch, and there was an apparition of a woman standing behind her in the middle window of the dining room. Carolyn said she didn't feel good about leaving Nancy behind, and when the family got to Georgia, where they currently live, two days later, and got out of the car, Andrea saw the same apparition standing behind Cindy. Oh. Then Carolyn gasped and said, This isn't over. This will never be over. And she was 1,000% correct on that. In August 1980, after the family had resettled, sold the farm, and moved to Georgia, Carolyn got a call from Lorraine, which Andrea has no idea how she found them BT-dubs. Lorraine asked Carolyn if she could write the book, make the movie, and offered Andrea's parents a metric fuck ton of money to do it. 
Carolyn was very reluctant, didn't even want to have the conversation with her, and Lorraine said to her, you need to at least discuss this with Roger. This is life-changing money that I'm offering you to tell your story, and you don't even have to be involved. I'm sorry. Hold, please. I have always held the Warrens in high regard, but that sounded shysty as shit. Yeah. That you don't even have to be involved. That just, mm, that rubs me the wrong way. That sounds like hush money to me, honestly. It's like, here, we're going to tell your story, but you don't have to worry about it. We'll take care of everything. Now take this money. I'm not for that right now. Anyway, Carolyn talked to Andrea about it, who was 22 at the time, and even she was reluctant. Carolyn said she would talk to Roger about it. When he came home that night, he took everyone out to dinner, but Carolyn stayed behind. This is the moment why, as Andrea will later state, that book three in her series was the most difficult to write because of the energy and entity's attachments and the repercussions of it. Carolyn went down to the basement after the rest of the family had left to throw in a load of laundry, and she was attacked. A 200-pound solid oak door that was well-propped and secured came flying off the wall and landed on top of her as she was putting clothes in the washer. What the fuck? It dislocated her shoulder, gave her a concussion, and she was an absolute mess. Yeah. That is why, as stated earlier, that after talking it over with the family and Lorraine calling for an answer, she was basically like, fuck off, there's not enough money in the world. (laughs) She forbade the Warrens from writing a book based on the experiences with the family on the farm, and they kept to their word that they wouldn't. It does explain why I've never heard of the case myself prior to the movies coming out, because I have always been obsessed with the Warrens, so to not know about it seemed baffling to me. Right, same. Andrea, of course, would later go on to write the book series and make a documentary titled Bathsheba Search for Evil, which she believes is the most accurate account ever put to screen. The film, as I said, is solely based on the case files of the Warrens. James had spoken to Andrea stating that there was no way he could make a film based on her books because no one would stay until the end. The real story was far too intense and compared to the film, incomparable. There were so many discrepancies in the script that it's virtually unrecognizable to the true story. There was a deal with the previous owner to film the interior of the house at the studio and the exterior shots at the actual farm, and New Line Cinema and WB backed out because James refused not only to set foot at the farm, but to never set foot in Rhode Island because he was so (laughs) freaked out after reading Andrea's books. Holy fucking shit! He's just like, fuck that whole state. Like, the whole state. I mean, it's a small state, (laughs) but still, like, Jesus. I need these books in my life. (laughs) I'll be honest. As I said, I didn't know about the case until the movie came out. Granted, it is one of my favorites. However, knowing that it only touches on the truth makes me even more eager to get my hands on the books. Yeah, really. I've only ever gotten to see excerpts, and I am dying to read the rest. Mm Getting back to it, Andrea believes that The Conjuring is the most toned-down movie from true story Hollywood has ever done. Holy shit. That's insane. But she is grateful for the film because without it, her story, her books would be collecting dust on the shelves rather than being the top-selling paranormal book of all time. Her books, by the way, are on the same level in recognition as Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol at this point. Wow. I I still, again, knew absolute jack shit about them. In regard to the film and how it ties into the attachments that Andrea mentions after the fact, she states, The film also has a number of cosmic kisses in it. Things that the writers could not have known about ended up in the movie, including the dog dying practically as soon as we moved into the house. I didn't even mention that our dog Schultz had been killed in a very tragic accident within 10 days of moving to the farm. 
I thought it would be two Moreaus to put in the books. There were so many people involved in making the movie, and we were all connected in consciousness. There were so many instances in the film where they make references to things they could not know about. The prime example is a scene where the camera rounds to the bedroom, into what's supposed to be my bedroom, and there's a folk art picture of a white cat on the mantel board. I have that very picture sitting right here in my office, and it was given to me by my mother's friend when we lived on the farm in 1972. Whoa. I don't know what made the set designer gravitate to this exact image and place it on the mantel board in my bedroom. Of all the wallpaper patterns they could have chosen also, they chose the one that was inside the farmhouse that we repapered the walls with. They couldn't have known this because they never even saw any inside photographs of the house. I don't know. It's universal. It's cosmic. It's spiritual. It's beautiful and horrible. It's everything all wrapped into one thing. End quote. That's really cool. Yeah. that encompasses a lot of my belief right there. Mm-hmm. Just everything she just said. On to the books, Andrea wrote three books on her and her family's experiences in the house called House of Darkness, House of Light. She was thorough in checking the recollections of her family members' experiences and took extensive notes on her own and the history of not only the land itself, but of the subject that encompasses the rumored main subject and accusations of the activity, witchcraft. One interesting tidbit that I had no idea about and will most definitely be researching for our own History of Witchcraft episode is in the series, Andrea states that Queen Elizabeth back in the 1500s was the biggest instigator of the witch hunts and subjugation of women, having them tortured, drawn and quartered, and every conceivable way you can harm a human body until it dies, just to draw out the witches in the country. Wow. That is a fact I never knew about that woman. That's fascinating. Yeah. Andrea says that we live in a sick world where pain and suffering is part of life for far too many. So she wanted to bring the truth to light because she has seen the dark side of existence and she chooses to deliberately live in the light so that she cannot be touched by the dark ever again. Good way to have a mindset, especially after living through that fucking hell. Back on the current topic, Carolyn is the only one of the family who's read all three books. Mind you, Andrea only ever meant to write the one and ended up a trilogy because there was just so much shit they went through in the decade they lived there even after. No one else wanted to read them to revisit it because it was too hard and emotional. Can't say I blame them in the least. No, not at all. Andrea recalls in 2011 when she published the first book, three years prior to the movie, she handed a hardbound copy to her sister Christine. She handed it back to Andrea when she was no more than 60 pages in with tears in her eyes and said, I'm so sorry, honey, I can't do this. Absolutely fair. She presented her books to her family in the sense that it would be their one opportunity to tell their story in the right way, not to have somebody else tell their version of the story or a story about their experiences at the farm, or worse yet, to make stuff up as they went along, which Andrea feels there's been too much of. Carolyn spent some time crying that Saturday night when Andrea brought the idea to her. Roger was troubled by his time there. Her sister Nancy was an emotional wreck. Cindy and Christine came in with Carolyn remotely from Georgia. Cindy said that she would never go back to the farm, ever. After Andrea returned and did an episode of Kindred Spirits there, Cindy got attacked. Carolyn, when the family left in June of 1980, swore that she would never return and never did. Carolyn had once said to Andrea while Andrea was writing the notes for the book, We spent decades trying to bury our dead, and yet it's amazing to assume them now how close to the surface they're buried. Andrea thought that was one of the most profound things that Carolyn ever said. And so that became part of her mantra surrounding the books. She wrote the first one in 2010, the second one in 2012, the movie came out in 2013, and she published the third in 2014. She believes that the third book is the most compelling of all. 
She at first thought it would be the easiest because it was the shortest of the three and because it was after the family left what happened after. That subsequently they were leaving it behind as a form of closure, but it was the most difficult. She realized, speaking with every member of her family, all of whom were living at the time, April passed away in 2017 from an overdose of what I don't know, that it was literally and figuratively closing the chapter on this part of their lives this decade, when in fact it exposed what happens when the door is open to spirit, a door that can never be closed, and they all had numerous encounters with spirits since they lived there. And this is still going on 50 years after they moved. Andrea is now 63. Another prophetic statement made by Carolyn surrounding this topic whilst leaving the farm was that they could leave the farm, but the farm would never leave them. Right. Carolyn was the one that encouraged Andrea to write the books because she said she was proud of her for doing it, that she was the writer of the family, so she should be the one to do it, and that this was the kind of story that one should not rightfully take to the grave. These books are available on Amazon for about 24 bucks a pop or 12 bucks on Kindle for the whole set. It is a time investment at 1,500 pages total. Wow. And it's not even the whole story, but it is the true story. The parts of the story that Andrea's sisters deliberately asked to be kept out of the book when they saw how warmly received their family was by the existing paranormal community, how loved their mother was, how loved their family is, it caused them to relax a little bit. One of the stories that did not make it into the book that Andrea disclosed to the reporter was for the sake of her sister's privacy. Cindy was 14 when this occurred. She was taking a bath, then some incredible force pushed on her chest down under the water and held her there as she beat furiously on the sides of the tub with her fists and kicked with her feet and fought over and over to come up above the water. April was in the kitchen and she did not hear anything that was going on in the bathroom. Oh my god. But something told her there was an emergency. And you will find throughout the course of reading through the books, there's an awful lot of telepathic communication that goes on in her family. And she just knew that there was something very wrong and she went bolting into the bathroom and she broke the bubble of intense activity that was going on around Cindy. And Cindy could not breathe. She held her breath as long as she could and had assumed that she was going to drown. It would not let her up. And when April came in, Cindy came flying up out of the water and was screaming and crying uncontrollably and credited April for quote-unquote hearing that she was in a crisis and intervening on her behalf. The reason that Cindy did not want this in the story, in the book, was because she was very conservative, like, very private. She didn't want the world to even imagine the image of a naked 14-year-old in the bathtub. Right. Let alone have that recreated visually later in the documentary. But as stated before, after the positive attitudes her and her family received, she became a little more on board with sharing it, and the previously redacted stories from her sisters, Andrea now had permission to use for the TV series that is in the works. Currently? Mm-hmm. What? Andrea is now working on a screenplay for a series titled after her books House of Darkness, House of Light, which will air over the course of three years, the only way to flesh out their story appropriately, and that people will see in the promos instead of the typical based on a true story, will be House of Darkness, House of Light, bringing the truth to light. That sounds awesome. I Seriously. cannot wait for it. She seems to be doing what every book nerd dreams about, Seriously. which is making an extensive detailed account from the book to TV show. I am all about this. Good on you, girl. Whoa. Like, I am so for this. I am so ready to see this. Oh my goodness. There were a couple other appearances the family made on TV besides the interviews from Andrea. A couple years ago, they returned to the farm to do a live Halloween special. This was the one and only time the family would go back. Andrea stated that she respects her family's wishes to not return to the farm after and will never ask. 
She doesn't want to put her mother through any strain more than she's already experienced, and it was a bad experience for all the family involved. Andrea felt that when she and her family returned to the house then, that their energy may have been remembered. But the activity was muted because there was an army of people there. Like, it makes sense. There was, like, yeah. a flood of people, a lot of technology in the room, lot just so much shit that the ghosts were like, yeah, no, no, hmm. I'm gonna stay in this hidey hole and be good. I'm good. I don't even know where to start. Weeks prior to this event, she had talked to the producers and crew that they had to be mindful of her father. He needs to be looked after as he's in his 80s now. They wanted him to go down to the basement where they believe Mrs. Arnold resided, and she informed them ahead of time that there had to be someone in front of him and someone behind him at all times down those stairs. That did not happen. They sent him down by himself, and he fell. Oh my god. He was okay, but that was the last straw with Andrea. Yeah. The other thing being that when she and her family would leave the rooms in the house that the paranormal crew was in, they made light of the situation. They joked and pretended to be possessed, totally disrespecting everything and everyone in the house. So Andrea lost her shit on the live show in front of 180,000 viewers. Justifiably so, in my opinion. <laughs> she expressed how she gets upset because there have been countless people going to the house masquerading as legit paranormal investigators and making a mockery of her family's story. I, for one, will say that, yes, this is a bucket list location we want to go to, but we are not there to provoke, disrespect, or fake anything just to get views. Like some people I myself have seen on YouTube and other sites, it is disgusting and we are not those people. Right. If we go and happen to get any activity, fantastic. If we get nothing, we will tell you. Mm-hmm. The whole media and Hollywood thing blew way out of proportion, and it really got to the family, especially Andrea and Carolyn. Carolyn is now out of the public eye. She acted bravely by stepping up and telling her story. Back in 2015, she did have one reluctant interview for the TV show Paranormal Witness. The crew kept and interviewed her for six hours and only had her appear for five minutes. Oh my god. She had never before and not since then agreed to do any other interview. Wow, how fucked. Yeah. Carolyn said, My time on this earth is too precious to me. If they did not consider my story worth telling, I don't intend to tell them again. Well said. Yeah. The crew of Paranormal Witness had thrown out all but the five minutes they used. They could have, as Andrea said, kept it on some sort of file and given it to her, but instead they told the family that they had the interview and they had to sign an NDA stating that if any of the cut footage ever ended up in the public eye that the family would be charged a $250,000 fine. What the fuck? So Andrea got pissed and told them to keep it. She had found out the hard way the publishing and film industries don't care about their story, only how to sensationalize it. Yeah. The house is still a major paranormal tourist spot today, and you can book tourists to check it out. There have been some doubters over the years, however. For instance, Norma Sutcliffe was a big contributor to that. She, at first, was stoked about buying a haunted house and was looking forward to living the experience. When the movie started getting popularity, however, she found that her land became overrun with ghost hunters and tourists that trespassed and wouldn't leave the house alone. She got overwhelmed, and instead of going to the police or trying the no trespassing thing, she decided to shit on the Perrin family. She claimed that the house wasn't haunted because she never experienced anything, that Carolyn was a liar trying to get attention, yada yada. Wow. She sounds like a fucking winner. More like a real piece of shit. But the following owners, the Heinzes, had a totally different opinion. In a 2019 interview on NBC10, Jennifer Heinzen recalled some of her experience, such as seeing what she called paranormal events. 
In a room one night, the head, the shoulders, but a black shadow. To me, it reminded me of Slenderman. It was kind of creepy, but it was exciting. So she saw like a shadow person. Yeah. And in an interview in 2020, Corey Heinzen told NBC10 about the quote-unquote goings-on he said he's experienced there. It's been very busy, doors opening and closing on their own, footsteps knocking, the disembodied voices. So it seems that the spirits that were attached to the house from back when the parents lived there are still there. Andrea believes that the entities there did not obtain their personas from life, but that they did maintain some of their characteristics. She doesn't know why they still hang on, Many of the documented hauntings reported happen because the spirits have died so suddenly, so tragically, that they sometimes don't even know they're dead. Or they took their own lives, which is frowned upon still today. But back two, three hundred years ago was considered the deepest mortal sin. So if you did it, it was a given that you would burn in hell eternally. So it could be that the spirits that did so stayed behind out of fear of going to hell. That's a good theory, actually. Mm. Because, like, if you're stuck behind with killing yourself and you decide not to move on because you don't know what's past the mortal realm, so you're just stuck there. You're like, I don't want to go to hell, but, you know. Fear of death and fear of the unknown are the two biggest things in our society that people tend to have a phobia of. I will openly admit, like, I have a phobia of death. Yeah, I'm afraid of dying prematurely and leaving my kids behind. So it's it's natural to feel that way. So yeah. you can't imagine if you're already dead, you don't know what comes after if you're kind of just stuck there. Like, I don't want to move on. That could be hell behind that door. Yeah. So how about it, my lovelies? Would you spend the night in the infamous Conjuring House? Do you believe that the tortured souls, or perhaps even the demonic entities that plague the parent family, still linger there? Or are you a skeptic and think that the whole story is just another Amityville? Book a trip and find out for yourselves. I know we will. Sleep tight. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Tune in next time for more ghastly ghouls and crazy killers. Don't forget to follow us on Anchor, click the links in the show notes for the books, clips, and interviews mentioned in the episode, and hop on over to our Facebook group to join in for updates and posts on upcoming episodes. Laters! Laters.